Good day, everyone. We are coming to the end of season four. Just another episode left. And I wanted to make a quick announcement. If you are hearing this in time, I believe it's actually going to be today. So probably too late to register. I will be presenting a very interesting medical education topic at Innovator MD. They have their annual summit on August 2nd through 8th. And if you're hearing this in time, might want to check it out. It should be available online and in person, but you should be able to find a link to it later on as well. We'll add the innovatormd.com link in the show notes or go to innovatormd.com for more information. I hope to see you there and I'll try to share my presentation with you when it's all done. All right, let's get on with today's show. Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Today, we are joined by Dr. Mitchell Cohen, who is a retired osteopathic physician and really focuses on the difference in pain treatment and pain management. Also has a really interesting title for a book here that I have to read, Osteopathy and the Zombie Apocalypse, A Career to Pre-Med and Pre-College Students. I mean, that just sounds really cool, I have to say. (laughs) Well, I owe the subject matter to my wife, who's really big into The Walking Dead, but it's been really well received. I've actually gotten all kinds. I put my email in there. So I've been contacted by a lot of people who said, this book made me decide to become a DO and not an MD. And I've actually been able to help mentor a couple of people because of the book. It presents scenarios and then gives the reader options how they'd want to deal with it and tells how an MD might deal with it, how a chiropractor might deal with it, how a DO might deal with it. Okay, that's really cool. It's sort of a choose your own destiny kind of book in medicine. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think this is the pain topic in general is really convoluted and complicated. And I'm far from an expert on any of this material. So I'm really curious to delve into some of these topics with a little more depth. And actually, some of the topics I think we're going to talk about tonight are ones that I hadn't even heard of before our pre interview call. So I'm really happy to have you on and very curious to know more about the differences in how different degrees and different specialties treat, especially pain management versus pain treatment. Actually, let's start off with that. What do you consider the difference in pain management versus pain treatment? Okay. I mean, it it sounds the same. And if you ever go online, it'll always say pain management. The problem is pain management is a subset of pain medicine. If there are people that you cannot, in fact, cure of their pain, you must help them manage their pain levels so they are functional. Pain treatment, the way I look at it, is we're trying to find the root cause of their pain and help cure it, which is not the same by any means. One is learning to live with lifelong pain, and the other is get rid of the source of the pain. The problem is the pain management mindset is pervasive. MDs outnumber DOs something like 
used to be 10 to 1 when I was going to school. Now I think it's about 7 to 1. But even so, the DOs, rather than utilizing all the tools that we have at our disposal, have found it more lucrative and have found it easier to go into the pain management model. You know, you don't understand the potential causes. It's easier to provide medications. We all know where that has led over the last decade or so with, you know, tremendous dependence on opiates. And they've tried to add all kinds of other neuromodulators, things like that, things that were used for brain neuromodulation for epilepsy and such have now become medications that they've used to try to modulate pain perception. And they work to some extent, but they're by no means a cure. So that's pain management. I have several tools that I use to actually diagnose the cause of pain. And what's really interesting is if you go to, I wish I could remember the name of it now, there have been a number of meta-analyses and some actually a larger pain book put up by the, I don't remember if it's the American Pain Association, something along those lines. And between 57 and 80% of all pain started as mechanical pain. The pain that did not start as mechanical, it's really hard to find a cause and treat. It's usually neurological because of a stroke or something that has affected the central nervous system directly. But if there was a mechanical origin, contrary to popular belief, they'll tell you that, in fact, if you go to pain experts, they'll tell you that after the pain has been present for between 60 and 90 days, it has actually changed the central nervous system so that it's practically impossible to get rid of the brain's perception of pain. Even if you were able to get rid of the source of pain, pain would still be registered. The problem with that is they're absolutely 100% wrong. I've proven that dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds of times over. If you can locate the source of ongoing tissue irritation, you can get rid of the source of pain in the majority of cases. Interesting. So when I think of pain management, I'm kind of thinking in two different ways. From Since I went the MD route, I'm thinking of anesthesia being one you know, immediate treatment for surgery and such, and then PM&R, or pain management and rehabilitation specialties. It sounds like your views and experiences here are quite a bit different from these. And I'm not even sure what the, I guess... The American Pain Association might be one of them. Are there several different organizations that are the credible sources for this type of research to see what's working? Actually, there are. The American Osteopathic Association has an offshoot called the American Association of Prolotherapy and Regenerative Medicine. And there's also the American Association of Orthopedic Medicine, I believe. It is not the larger orthopedic association, but it's a subset that uses things like prolotherapy. They may even, even though it's an MD organization primarily, I believe that they use and respect manual medicine. They may work with chiropractors. Now, my view on chiropractic and osteopathic manipulation, they're two very different things. And yet, 
they have one thing in common, that is that they use hands-on diagnosis and hands-on treatment. But those are the two umbrella organizations. The American Osteopathic Association itself, which encompasses all osteopaths, has supported a lot of research. And there is one or two journals that they put out, which publishes or publish research. And then, of course, osteopathic colleges do research and have yearly meetings where they put out that information. Okay. It seems like there are a lot of terms or sort of this alphabet soup when it comes to pain management. You have what, OMM for osteopathic manual manipulation. You have, I think one of them we discussed was PIN. I forget what it stands for. So, well, there was PIT. That's different. That PIT is perineural injection therapy. Okay. And then there's PRP. And PRP, yes, platelet-rich plasma injection therapy. <laughs> and these are just things, at least from coming from an MD school, like never heard of those in class or for the USMLE step exam or anything like that. So this might be very new for a good percentage of the audience here. I think it will be very new. Maybe I should kind of go back and talk about those basics. I use three types of basic approaches. The first is the osteopathic approach, intellectually and holistically, which means I'm treating the patient as an entire unit. They can have headache problems, and I have seen this happen. It can be coming from sacral dysfunction. It can be coming from a short leg. So we look at the entire patient, and it sounds wacko, but if we have time and you want to go into how it mechanically causes this, I can go into that as well. But basically using that intellectual framework to approach the patient. Then I use the hands-on diagnosis. I have seen some really fine MDs. In fact, I had one young MD resident. She came in before the, she was actually studying under a DO, doctor of osteopathy attending, and he was an internist. She came in and she did the most wonderful hands-on exam. So I know you guys learn this stuff at least some of the, you know, the basics of it. And I just told her, I said, no matter what you do, I said, don't forget to do a good hands-on examination. You'll pick up a lot. There are a lot of things that we learn that you don't learn about the mechanics of the body, but those basic building blocks, you guys learn those as well. So you do that intellectually, holistically, physical examination, and there are specific things we can look at. I could tell your audience in five minutes, how to determine what most of your pain experts do not know in terms of origin of pain. And if you want to go there, we'll go there in a minute. The next thing would be the PIT, perineural injection therapy. It is a lot newer than, say, prolotherapy or PRP. The science behind it, it was really interesting. When I learned it, it was from a gentleman named John Liftoff. Yes, it's, it's pronounced Liftoff, but it's L-Y-F-P-O-G-T, I believe. It's a Dutch name. But John is actually, he's from New Zealand. But he discovered it accidentally while he was trying to do prolotherapy to himself. So I guess we'll talk about prolotherapy real quickly first, if that's okay. Prolotherapy is the use of injecting substances. And there have been a variety of substances over the last almost 100 years that they've been doing this. What's most 
favored right now is hypertonic dextrose. So between 17 and 35% dextrose, you inject it into say the origin of a tendon or a ligament uh, or into a joint. And I have my own thoughts about how it actually works, but there's been a lot of research on this. They used to think that it caused scarring, which strengthened a tendon or ligament. Turns out it doesn't. When I was going to Michigan State University, which is where I did my residency, the PhDs there were working on this. They would injure a rabbit's tendon or ligament do prolotherapy injections, then of course they'd sacrifice the rabbit. And they found that instead of scar tissue, what was getting laid down was perfectly organized connective tissue. So you're rebuilding the ligament or the tendon, only it tends to be thicker and stronger than before it was injured. And actually it'll also shorten them, which is very important when you have loose, let's say someone has an ankle that has been sprained over and over and over. Uh, very common. Once someone's got a really bad sprain, it's so easy to re-sprain it. Well, if you inject the ligaments around the ankle, they become thicker, stronger, and shorter going back to their more normal position and length, and people stop spraining their ankles. This episode is brought to you by findarotation.com, where students and preceptors can schedule rotations with ease and security. Schedule your next clinical rotation. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. And that's interesting because when, at least when I think of pain management, pain being a subjective property, it's got to be difficult to objectively find proper treatments for something like that. And you're saying there is actually an objective result from this that can be measured, that can be studied and examined. That's interesting. Absolutely. If you wanted to quantify it, and I do know that occupational therapists and occupational physicians quantify this kind of thing all the time, someone will have hyperextensibility. So if you use, what is it, a goniometer to check you know, their strength or range of motion of a particular joint, you can find that range of motion or strength. Strength is weak if it's a tendon issue. The joint can be deformed more easily if it's a ligament issue, but those disappear after prolotherapy or PRP, they become more normalized. PRP, by the way, is platelet-rich plasma. This is becoming much more accepted. In fact, you will find a lot, a lot of MDs going into PRP because it's using the patient's blood. It turns out if you actually injected whole blood, it would still do the same thing, but you need a really large volume of blood to inject into a joint. So what they've done is they found the active parts are really the plasma proteins and platelets and what the platelets contain. So they basically take blood from a patient, spin it down, and from about 30 cc's, they'll end up with about 5 cc's of injectable solution that is just plasma and platelets. That's why they call it platelet-rich <laughs> plasma. Really tough language here. But inject that into a joint. It'll help rebuild not only ligaments and tendons, it will help rebuild cartilage, which has not previously really been known to heal. So you can get cartilage to heal. Happy to, my brother-in-law has said, I can always talk about this. He had damage to his great toe and the x-ray showed bone on bone. I did injections of 
prolotherapy and PRP try to achieve the same things. It's just prolotherapy technically is using a substance other than platelet-rich plasma, and platelet-rich plasma is doing the exact same injection using your own blood products. But what happened was he went back to his own doctor after we fixed his toe, and she's looking at the x-ray and saying, how did he do this? There's cartilage there now. Well, it's not a miracle. It's just stimulating the body to heal itself. There are stem cells. We now know, we didn't know this way back, but we now know there's stem cells everywhere, platelet-rich plasma and prolotherapy or prolotherapy with growth hormone can stimulate stem cells to differentiate into things like chondrocytes and become new cartilage or become new collagen-forming cells. I don't remember any of that in my histology and cell biology classes. <laughs> you wouldn't have found it. When I went through school, we were just told if someone has a tear to their, say, their medial meniscus, they're done. That meniscus needs to come out because it's just going to irritate the bone. Then they found you can sew that together. This is 10 years after I was out of school. They said, you can sew that together. It'll heal. Well, before they told us the circulation is you know, non-existent within the joint. So how can it heal? Okay, it heals. Now we found with prolotherapy or PRP or even stem cells, I'm sure you've heard about that. There's injectable stem cells. I have not had any better results using placental stem cells than I have had using PRP. But we now know that there are stem cells everywhere. And the question is, how do you stimulate the body to utilize those to differentiate and become the cells you need? Well, they're sort of pre-programmed in the joint. All we've got to do is stimulate it. And it, it's amazing. I've seen just wonderful, wonderful stuff. People who said, I've got bone on bone. My doctor says I've got to have a knee replacement, but I'm too young, blah, blah, blah. We do the injections, you know, and within months, they don't have bone on bone anymore. Okay. I When I did my PMNR rotation a few years ago, I remember we used PRP and we used steroids. Those were kind of the So you have been exposed to that. To that part, yeah. <laughs> okay. Some of the other the promo therapy was completely new to me. I don't recall us using stem cells. I'm not sure if that was as commonly used a few years ago as it might be now. So not too familiar with that. It was not used very commonly. And I'm still, I still have some concerns about it. But it does seem to be working. There's more research on it. And the FDA has approved the use of placental stem cells. The FDA has not okayed the use of your own stem cells, which can be harvested from fat for rejection. I have yet to fathom that. It would, seems to me it would make more sense to use an autologous you know, injection rather than using something from somebody else. All right, so we're going on with this alphabet soup of all these injectables. And <laughs> so we've gotten basically through the PRP, and PROLO stands for proliferation therapy. So what they found, like I said, it was basically almost 100 years ago. It was back in the 1930s, I believe, when they started doing this. Now we do it with sugar and water. Well, I was mentioning Dr. Liftoff. He was trying to inject his own Achilles tendon because he had pain. He was a runner and he couldn't run. Well, I hate to tell you, it's really, really hard to inject into your own anything, <laughs> especially into a tendon, which is inflamed and painful. He said, I could only get the needle in like a fraction of an inch. 
He said, I injected what I could there and just let it go. But to his amazement, he still got improvement. And he says, how is that possible? I didn't get down to the tendon. Well, it took him several years, and I won't go through the whole thing, but through a lot of experimentation and then incorporating some colleagues, you know, telling them about it, they've done experimentation. Dean Reeves, MD, is one. Uh, John Liftoff is an MD as well. And there are a few others. They found that if you inject only 5%, not 17, not 25%, but only 5% glucose, dextrose, near an injured or inflamed nerve, the pain stops almost instantaneously. And if you do it enough times, the nerve heals. So now we've got a way to realign structures that don't work properly. That would be the hands-on diagnosis and treatment, moving things. And it's not just, everybody thinks of moving the bones back into place. It's not just that. There's a lot of soft tissue work that goes into it. In fact, soft tissue dysfunction is what maintains bones being quote-unquote out of place. So you've got that. And what I found in my early work, that's all I knew was manipulation. And I found I could still make like 85% of the people feel better but so many of them would go back to not feeling well. And you go, darn it, I got to go do it again. Well, then with prolotherapy or PRP, I could not only get them back into a functional position, but now we could strengthen the tissues that were dysfunctional or weakened and it would hold. I'm going, oh, this is amazing. Now we've got like, you know, 85% of the people staying better, but there's still a number of people who no matter what I did, they just weren't getting better. I could get them into position. I could get it to hold and they would still be tender. They would still have pain. Well, a good majority of those are nerve injury and it's peripheral, which is if you talk with a pain medicine expert, they will tell you it's gotten into the central nervous system and it's really impossible to change or it's really, really hard to change. So we're going to give you meds. Or we're going to do physical therapy. Physical therapy has its place, but it is not high on my list of effective treatments by any means. But if you inject the affected nerve, these people get better permanently. So now we've got a way to get things in position, a way to hold them in position. And if those don't do it, if we can find the affected nerves, we can treat those. I've got about eight places that sound like these treatments right now. <laughs> Most people do. And after I'm one of those. Now, I've gotten a lot of treatments from colleagues. I used to walk with a cane, by the way. Oh, wow. I, I, I was bent over, walked with a cane. I ended up having to do the manipulation myself, but it was a long story behind that. But once I was able to finally stand up straight, I couldn't stay straight, and the pain was intense. I had a colleague do prolotherapy on my back. I stopped walking with a cane. I walked with a cane for 10 years, bent over. I stopped walking with a cane back in, I believe it was 2012. And I couldn't walk more than a few houses. Now I've been known to run five miles. Now that sounds too good to be okay, true. Okay, jog, I don't run. <laughs> I mean, that sounds kind of like a miracle right there. And generally, and it sounds like BS. Yeah, we're taught to be very skeptical of things that show that significant a difference, at least when we don't understand them that well. I'm just curious, like, how do you view this? How is the medical community taking this so far? Because from my experience, it's still not being taught in medical school. 
which, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean there's no weight to it. It just right. hasn't gone and, through as much scrutiny or. I'll be honest, Chase, this is the problem. Not only is it not being taught in medical schools, in MD schools, drug companies, medical device companies, and the providers of diagnostic equipment like MRIs are all very profitable and they invest heavily in medical schools and osteopathic schools. Where do you think the training will become focused if your if the person who's behind your school belongs to one of those groups? It's not going to be on manual medicine. It's not going to be on cure. I mean I hate to say this, but I have had to say it many times. If you've got an opiate, and that's the one thing that now everybody can finally agree on. I've been saying it for, you know, almost 30 years. If you've got an opiate that can control someone's pain, make them mostly functional, are you going to say, okay, I don't have the skills to do that. They didn't teach it to me in school because we were focused on how do we control their pain? And then you've got the companies who are advertising. Back in my day, it was things like OxyContin, you know, and we all know what happens when you get someone hooked on any of the opiates, but OxyContin was a wonderful one. Then they can't get it because people say, you're hooked on it. Then they go to heroin, which is a fine pain reliever, but it has a few drawbacks. And then you end up, yeah, just a couple. <laughs> and then you end up with more deaths associated with those things. It's only been in the last few years that people are starting to look at things like stem cells and PRPs. There are MDs who have learned osteopathic diagnosis and treatment. There's one guy at Isaacs who was a neurologist, an MD neurologist. He said, you know what? I can't actually fix anybody. All I can do is if, you, if they've got a problem, and he's, this was years and years ago, right? This is 20 some years ago when I was doing residency. And said, I can't, I can't fix anyone. They come in with a headache. All I can do is either give them a medicine or I can send them to physical therapy, which may or may not help. It's very hit or miss because physical therapy is not based on diagnosis, which is why it's not my favorite thing to do. It is literally by rote. Or I can send them to a surgeon for evaluation, possible treatment, which may or may not help. You would be surprised how many surgeries have been done without good reason and have failed. I'm actually an expert at treating failed back surgeries because they were done for the wrong reason. You end up with scar, a whole, whole lot of things. Anyway, that's another story. We'll go into that another time. When Ed said, I'm really not helping people, he said, what can I do? So he started looking around for something he could do. And he found this weird thing called OMM, osteopathic manipulative medicine, or OMT. They'll call it osteopathic manipulative treatment or osteopathic manipulative therapy. He started to learn it. He started finding that he could actually make people better. He not only became certified in it, he became one of our teachers. And he liked to call himself an MD gone bad <laughs> because he stopped doing what most MDs did and said there are better things out there. That's it for this episode, but stay tuned next week. We'll continue on with part two of this amazing content. I'll see you then.
The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.